Good morning. My name is Kristen Paleo. I'll be reading the scripture for this morning's sermon. It's found in Genesis chapter 11. I'll be reading one verse, verse 26, and it's found on page 8 of the Pew Bible, if you turn with me. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the word of the Lord. It's an odd scripture reading this morning, isn't it? I mean, yes, all scripture is breathed out from God, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, and profitable for us. All scripture is good scripture. Still, what, what are we going to do with one line from a genealogy that has four names, Terah, Nahor, Abram, and Haran, especially when most of us have not heard of three of these men, and the one we have heard of, we know him better as the name he receives later, not Abram, but Abraham. How will we take one line from one genealogy buried in Genesis as the basis of our sermon? We'll know this. This man called Abram, who became Abraham, is a big deal. Around four billion worshipers, you take the broadest meaning of worshiper, worldwide from the three biggest monotheistic religions, trace their roots through him. Four billion people. Abraham's a big deal. But not at first, he wasn't. All summer long, we're going to have more children in the worship services. We're suspended um, elementary Sunday school education to bring bring people in here. So if if you're in here and you're not normally here, know that I'm glad that you're in here. Um, As Noah and Ben say, you're not the church of tomorrow, you're the church of today. And so we're going to redo or do again what we did last summer, which was drawing pictures, if you want to, if that helps you, if you're old or young. (laughs) Um, So in most of the bulletins, I'm not sure I got in all of them, but there's a half sheet of paper, mostly blank, and it has an idea that you might want to draw a picture of. It's of what a perfect city might look like. Um, So if that's fun to think about, if that helps you pay attention, we're going to get to that at the very end of the sermon. And and you're welcome to just lay them up front, and then we'll, we'll hang them up during the week, so... With all that in mind, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we've sung, but I believe prayerfully sung, asking that you would wake us up. And another song, that you would open up our eyes. Lord, these imply what, what is true, that we are sleepy. We're not, we're, not, we're not alert to who you are and what you're doing, what you can do, what you've promised to do, what you are even doing now among us. Lord, through the preaching of your word, through the gathering of your people, through the prayers that are prayed, the songs that are sung, the, the handshakes and the the laughter and the tears, Lord, would you meet with us and wake us up? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
we don't have much information about most of the people in the Bible. We have a good bit about Joseph and Moses and plenty on David, and we know many details of the lives and the ministries of people like Paul and Peter. We have a few stories from the lives of the various prophets like Isaiah and Hosea, famously, actually, in the case of Hosea and his wife. But for most of the prophets, we know far more of their their written prophecies than what we might describe as their personal lives. We simply do not have enough information on most characters in the Bible to write a biography. Consider, for all the significance of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the New Testament, the parents of John the Baptist, also a couple who, like Abram and Sarai, would struggle with barrenness, we have little more on Zechariah and Elizabeth than perhaps a couple sentences or maybe a couple paragraphs scattered over two chapters in Luke's gospel. With Abram, however, we have 15 whole chapters of material in Genesis from chapter 11 through 25. And in most of those chapters, the spotlight is trained on him. And he's at center stage, in a way, humanly speaking. Additionally, the New Testament mentions Abraham by name 72 times across a few dozen passages. And the very first verse of the New Testament begins speaking of Jesus Christ as, quote, son of David, son of Abraham. Just linger on that for a moment, would you? For all the countless people who lived and died, lived and died, lived and died before Jesus, we must appreciate that The New Testament tells us to understand the story of Jesus Christ. We must understand the lives of two men, David and Abraham. In other words, the good news that grows on the family tree starts with Abraham, branches to David, and reaches to Jesus. I could go on, but I'll stop. The point I'm making is that Abram, who became Abraham, is a big deal. But not at first. Not at first. When we see a sports prodigy like a young tennis star or perhaps a gymnast or a swimmer or perhaps leaving the genre of sports, a violinist or a chess player, probably that person got trained from an early age to be as good as they are to do what they do. They might have been even sent away to special camps, leave their family and go to schooling where gifted or exceptionally gifted people train. In his autobiography, Open, Andre Agassi talks about going to the Nick Boletari Tennis Academy. He didn't like it, but he went. Some of you might remember the name Bella Caroli, a famous gymnast coach also. People didn't really care mostly for his tutelage. But you, you, you might hear that or think of these contexts and think, okay, that's maybe what Abraham was like. Perhaps he showed some early promise, some skill at leading others, some faithfulness in the small things. And God saw that and said, that's the guy I want. That's the guy I best think can then show my glory to the rest of the world. If you think this, 
you could not be more wrong. The Bible speaks a better story. And I'm going to, for the rest of the sermon, show you why Abraham, Abraham, I'll interchange that, largely I'll stay calling him Abram while we're in the Abram section and Abraham when we get to that part. But Abraham, Abram, has at least three major challenges against him at the moment God met him. I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon exploring those challenges. But I want to tell you right up front the payoff, so to speak. Here it is. Nothing in your past or present can keep God from using you. That's like every sermon we're just trying to say, okay, what's the one thing we're going to take away? Here's the one thing from this sermon. As we start in the backstory of Abram, there is nothing in your past or present that can keep God from using you. There might be some things that need to change. In fact, there probably is things that need to change. But there is nothing in your past or present that God can't change. Indeed, there will be a day when everything about your past and everything about your present will change gloriously forever. Abram points us to that. So I'll say the main point one more time. Abraham, or Abram became a big deal. But before he was a big deal, he wasn't. And if you stay with us all summer long, you'll realize that if we were to speak even more carefully, we would say that even Abram, when he was a big deal, it was not Abram who was a big deal, but Abram's God who was and is a big deal. Which is good news for us. It's good news because Abram's God, still in charge, still loves his people. The verse we read and the context around it shows us many of the challenges that Abram had against him. I'm going to mention three of them. There was the challenge of the world around him, the challenge of the world within him, so to speak, and the challenge of the world he was unable to change. None of these could stop God, though. Still, let's look at them closer. Let's start with the challenge of the world around him. Hopefully you still have the Bible open there to Genesis 11. For that, we're going to have to go to the beginning of the chapter, see the world around Abram. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. It's a little long, and I could just summarize it, but we got time. (laughs) Let's just read it. First nine verses. Speaking of stories relatively it's not that long so let's read this together Genesis 11 1 to 9 this is the world Abram's being brought up in now the whole earth had one language and the same words and as the people migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and they said to one another come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had bricks for stone and bitmen for mortar Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. And I'll just pause there briefly. To use the words of our sermon series that we're going to use all summer, they were looking for a city. I'll say it, a city with foundations, a city with substance. They wanted what we all want. 
Continuing, verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Note that. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Pause again quickly. A little irony there. (laughs) They want to build a tower to the heavens. And the God who is in the heavens says, we've got to come down and look at it. (laughs) Let's go look at their little tiny tower and their city. It's not as big as they think it is. They're not as great as they think they are. Continuing verse 6. Then the Lord said, behold, they are one people and... They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they purpose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. They left off. They just just stopped, left their tools, left their venture capital money, and they quit. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, There's a word player there in Hebrew. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Can you see the challenge of the world that Abram's brought into? It's not like Abram's brought up in this golden era of peace and industry. God sees the potential for human pride and evil, and so he he scatters them by confusing their languages. Imagine some up-and-coming city. There's always this line about... The fastest growing city in America. Apparently there's 25 cities that are the fastest growing city in America. But anyway, imagine that city or those cities and everyone just walks away abandoning construction. Buildings sit empty. They're half completed. Graffiti covers walls. Crime and danger are everywhere because there's no government. There's no police. There's nobody working together. Might makes right. It's like this dystopian movie. It's the challenge of the world Abram's brought up. And, and today you might, and I live in a city better than Babel. At least in many ways, we have electricity and clean water. We have access to health care that they would have considered magic, taking pictures of our insides. But our world and our city has many of the same challenges. Consider how polarized we are. The two people might be speaking the same language, we'll say English, but their views on life can be so apart that they don't even know how to communicate. There's this massive suspicion in so many directions. There is suspicion of people who look different from each other. There's suspicion of those who live in certain areas. If you live in the city, you might be suspicious of those who don't. If you live on a farm or in a rural community, you might be suspicious of those who live in an urban center might be suspicious of people who don't have money or suspicious of those who do have money, suspicious of those who go to one kind of church while those in that kind of church are suspicious of those who don't go to any church or another kind of church. We're suspicious of those who vote differently, suspicious of those who approach COVID differently. And if you look at this challenge and you think, okay, this is easy, We've got to do this, this, and this, and we can solve it. I'd, I'd say, you're not really looking at the problem. 
At least not rightly. This is Abram. Is Abram in his own strength up for this challenge? Is he going to bring the people together and bring them into a golden era? Was he good enough on his own to be the kind of missionary that God would send to the nations? Are you in your own strength able to fix the polarization, the suspicion? Are we in our own strength? No, but I think God is. Let's go to the next challenge. There's the challenge of the world within him. By this, I mean both the spiritual bent he had as sinful, but also his pagan religious upbringing. Abram comes into the great story of God in, after Genesis 3. He's east of Eden. He's born like all of us with a sinful bent. That's one part of the challenge. But layered on top of that, there's something else too. There's the religion he's raised with. I, I want to read verse 27 through 29. This is right after verse 26 that was read earlier. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishka. Come back to the details here in a moment. But right now it's June, which means it's Pride Month. All over the country, I suppose in many parts of the world, though not all over the world, but many parts of the world, people, organizations, corporations, and cities are celebrating the self-expression particularly in the areas of LGBTQ and you see it in stores, you see it in sports, you see it on the flags that hang outside the buildings of religious clubs. And I texted my friend Jeff, he's a pastor of a church in Oregon City. Oregon City is a suburb of Portland, Oregon, which is one of the major cultural worship centers of pride. And I, I texted with Jeff this week, and I said, what's it like to be a pastor in Portland during Pride Month? What's, what's that like? And he had a long response, multiple text messages back, and I won't tell you all that he said. It was a long response, but he said, it's really like June and July. And then later in the text message, he said, well, it's like really all year. Now, what if I told you, Jeff, this gospel-preaching pastor, had a wife, and her name was Pride. And she grew up in Portland. Now, that's not true. His wife's name is Carrie. But what if I told you that was true? And and then what if I told you Jeff had a niece, one niece named Inclusion, and another niece named Equality? You would think, hmm, I bet Jeff's got some stories he'd tell. Right? Like, that's, I'm intrigued. That's not too far from the story of a pastor named Caleb Kaltenbach. He wrote a book a couple years ago, titled Messy Grace. Subtitle, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. Pastor Caleb was raised by two mothers. 
And when you hear that, you think probably, hmm, he's probably got some stories, <laughs> which is why he wrote a book. And it's a pretty good book, as I understand it. I've only read parts of it. Now come back to Abram. All that in mind. He was born in Ur. And he moved to a city called Haran. That comes up in verse 31, 32. It's actually spelled differently in the Hebrew. It's like it should be spelled with two R's. It's not the name of his brother exactly. But anyway, you do any research on these two cities, you'll find that they were the two biggest cultural religious centers of pagan moon worship. It's interesting, right? Then you note that when scholars press into the names of some of these people in the genealogy around Abram, you realize that some of the names have connections to pagan moon worship. So one scholar notes, quote, Sarai, Abram's wife, means princess. And it may be a reference to Saratu, the wife of the moon god Sin in the Mesopotamian pantheon, close quote. Another scholar writes, quote, several of Abram's Relations have names that suggest adherence to lunar worship. Sarah, Milka, Laban. Laban comes in the story later. Lunar worship, a cult that was prominent in Ur and Haran. Gordon Winham, book of, his book's called Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, page 252. But scholars don't have to be the only ones telling us this. This information's found in the Bible itself. For example, there's a leader many years after this named Joshua. And Joshua, he's leading the people into the promised land and Chapter 24, he has this speech with God's people. It will be familiar to some of you. He, he says, choose for this day whom you're going to serve. And the famous line, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he says. That's what Joshua says. But three times leading up to that phrase, he says, are you going to worship the gods that Terah worshipped beyond the river? <laughs> like over on the other side, over in Mesopotamia, over in Ur, over in Haran? Are you going to be like that or are you going to choose for this day whom you're going to serve? But, 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 Think of what that implies, that Abram's fathers worshipped other gods. Yet the challenge of the spiritual world within him gets, within him gets even more challenging. Put this together with Genesis 12.4, which says that when God called Abram, he was 75 years old. Which means that he's born a sinner, he lived in the world right after the city of Babel was destroyed, where no one could get along, no one could speak the same language, but then when they did get along, they managed to worship pagan gods together, which are known in the Bible as demons, and he did all of this in two cities renowned for pagan worship, and he did it for seven decades. We think of Abraham as this great Jewish man, and in a way, he became that, but that's not how it started. Today, You may have come to church, no context for the Lord, or little. Our songs seem strange. The lyrics don't mean much to you. A few times I've said things about this famous story or alluded to other passages. This might be familiar to you. You think, I don't even know who Abraham is. My preaching might feel strange, maybe even offensive. And yet, what I want to say to you is that there is no one so far from God that God can't break in and change things. Shine the beauty of the gospel that that Jesus wouldn't become special. There's no challenge too big for God. But before I close, let me mention one final challenge. The final challenge is the world he can't change. 
has to do with Abram's inability to have children, to, to leave a legacy. This will come up later in the sermon series, but the name Abram, Avram, Av is, is this, means father, father of many. That's, that's Abram. But father of many has no children. <laughs> Look at our passage. 27, now reading through 30. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishka. Now Sarai was barren. As if we don't know what that means, they add, she had no children. <laughs> I was talking with Ben Bechtel about this. It's like, it just feels like they're just rubbing it in. Just this, this, this ancient highlighter. Haran doesn't live long, it seems. But he fathers Lot, has two daughters. That's 27 and 29, verse and then his older brother Nahor has a wife, and we're not told, but he has a family who comes into the story later, much later, a daughter named Rebecca. It's important for later in Genesis. The point being that everyone has kids except the guy who's named father of many. It's sort of funny, but not in a ha-ha sort of way, of course. It's more of a sad, ironic way. Infertility hurts. Especially in a world where children were, were, were everything. Abraham doesn't have a 401k, retirement. Your children were your retirement plan. And there's no fertility doctors or drugs you can take or procedures you can have done. This is why barrenness, speaking in the context of the Bible and to some extent even still today, seems to function as this metaphor for being without hope. It stands in for the things you desperately want to fix, but you just can't fix. Any of you have some of these? Any of you have things you want to fix but can't fix? I mean, I mean the serious things. Any kids here who wish their parents' marriage was better? You're tired of crying at night because you don't know what next year will hold? Any of you have not a past problem with alcohol, but present you may struggle with anger. They just, they just can't get rid of the anger. This is real, isn't it? So it was with Abram and his wife. And this, this is where God chooses to meet him. Not after he cleans himself up, but here, now, Abram, as he really is, with challenges too big for him. One of my favorite preachers has this line that popped back into my head as I was studying this. He says, there are no great men of God. Never has been, never will be. There are only small, tiny, weak, faithless men of great and merciful God. And to whatever degree God uses you, he adds, you must understand that he always chooses the run of the litter, always, so that glory might go to him. And he's right. One letter in the New Testament, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, puts it like this. He's writing to Christians. He says, for consider your calling. We're talking about Abram and he's called next week. Ben Bechtel's going to preach this. Chapter 12, verse 1. 
We're called out of darkness into light in the gospel. He says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look at my tower, Lord. There's no... Continuing, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and say, book of Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think of this passage as, this passage in our church plant. We're not smart enough. We're not cool enough. We're not michel enough. We're not enough enough of whatever we're supposed to be enough of to reach the city by ourselves. Those of you who are going, know that. (laughs) Feel that. And for those of us who stay, we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, big enough, clever enough to become a pillar of this community, even as we named our church community, on our own. It's us, it's us, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And this biblical pattern of the outsider, the underdog, the unlikely hero is so prominent in the story of God. It's it's, it's so much a part of God's ways that at the very center of redemption comes one born an outsider. Jesus had a strange birth. (laughs) He's from the wrong town. One of his own disciples would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Anything good come from Ur? Another passage speaks of Jesus as not having physical beauty, but actually being one from men, from whom men hide their faces. That's the language of Isaiah 53. And when he's crucified, he's crucified as one criminal next to other criminals. But we know the full truth, don't we? The one they crucified rose again on the third day. And Abram knew that the good news of the gospel is not that we are great and God makes us greater. The good news of the gospel is that God chooses the outsider because when he does, it makes him look all the better. And the gospel is about God getting glory and us getting God. And this way of setting up salvation means that anyone can get in on it. A salvation that's by grace through faith To sinners means that anyone can have a bright future. And speaking of a bright future, we'll close here. We titled the summer sermon series after the way the author of Hebrews looks backwards and speaks of Abraham. And this bright language future and the longings we all have for it. I want to read Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. You don't have to turn there. Uh, it's on the front of the bulletin. If you picked one up, you can turn there if you want. You can just hear it read. By faith, the author writes, by faith, Abram Ham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For, 
Note this, 4, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And you go in the passage and say, okay, it wasn't just a city that was a city then. To say that Abram or Abraham was looking for the city with foundations is a way to say that every city, the cities of Ur and Haran, even Jerusalem, the cities of Harrisburg and Hershey, the cities of New York and Washington, D.C., all have flaws, sometimes big flaws. And yet for those who know God, there is a future city coming, a heavenly city, a city with substance and foundations, a city that is designed and built by God. That's where we're headed this summer, metaphorically, through the preaching, <laughs> probably, only that. But that's where we're headed in the big future, if you're caught up in the story of God. So if any kids drew pictures of what that city looks like, I'd love to see it. We'll hang them up. And we'll draw pictures and preach about Abram all summer long. Let's pray. Invite the worship team up to lead us in one more song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we can come in here, as Paul would say, the, the, the chief of himself, the chief of sinners. <laughs> in our spiritual deadness, is the very kind of problem you love to solve. So for ourselves, for our friends, for our family, for our coworkers, for this world, would you pour hope into us in such a way that we overflow and share that hope with the world? We pray this in Christ's name.